The Missouri General Assembly is kicking into high gear, with GOP lawmakers like State Representative Tony Lavasco making big decisions on COVID-19-related funding, photo identification requirements for voting, and the future of the state's Medicaid program. The St. Charles County Republican joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about these issues, as well as whether his colleagues will expand charter schools throughout the state. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me is St. Louis Public Radio's Jefferson City reporter, Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us for the first time ever, our special guest today is State Representative Tony Lavasco. Thank you, Representative, for joining us. Uh, Before we pepper you with hostile and difficult questions, uh, could you give our listeners a sense of what number your district is and what it encompasses? Sure. I represent District 64, uh, which is northern St. Charles County. I've got a good chunk of northern O'Fallon. And then it goes up to uh, southern Lincoln County, uh, where I'll have uh, Old Monroe, parts of Winfield, a little bit of Troy, uh, and various areas in between. Tell us a little bit about yourself. As we were kind of talking before you press record, uh, your entry into legislative politics was somewhat unexpected. It was driven by the fact that your predecessor, State Representative Robert Cornejo, got an appointment I believe, after he won his primary. Um, so just kind of explain like how you got into this wacky world of Missouri politics. You know, it, it, it's a bit of a long and winding road, to be honest. Uh, I, I started actually uh, getting involved in local matters uh, first. Uh, I, I tell the story, I, I got home from work one day and uh, two of my trees were missing out of my, my yard, just totally gone. Kind of, kind of bizarre situation. So I called the cops, of course, you know, something's missing. You, you call law enforcement and they, they kind of, a little bit of silence on the line. They, they said, well, you know, is there debris everywhere? Was there vandalism? Something like that. And I said, no, it's all, all perfectly fine. It's just trees are missing. And they said, well, typically speaking, vandals don't clean up after themselves. I, this is kind of a bizarre situation, but I don't think this is criminal. I mean, you should call the city. I called the city and they said, oh, well, you know, we, we didn't take your trees. We, we need a warrant to come onto your property. We couldn't just do that. And call your homeowners association. So I called the HOA and they're like, well, yeah, that was us. We did that. Sorry, what What now? And come to find out the local HOA had uh, basically had a meeting and decided that they were going to clean up the, the subdivision and they dispatched a construction crew to go out and trim people's bushes and cut down trees and whatnot to make the neighborhood look better. And, you know, they thought that was going to help everyone's property values, but they didn't bother to actually consult with the property owners. So I was not too happy about that. So I, I kind of jumped into my local HOA uh, politics a little bit, didn't get too far there, but that got me looking at local governments, uh, at which point I actually ran for local county council office. Uh, first election didn't uh, didn't go quite as well as I would have hoped, but I learned quite a bit. Uh, and then a few years later, decided I wanted to get more involved and I ran again. Uh, that was actually 2018. Uh, and uh, I was running in a Republican primary uh, for St. Charles County Council. It was a three-way race. Uh, didn't end up winning that, that match, unfortunately. However, uh, 
as you pointed out, my state representative, Robert Cornejo, uh, had gotten an appointment uh, to the Labor Commission, I believe, shortly after the August primary. And since I had just completed a race running for county council, I had literally just uh, gone through the whole, whole process. Uh, the local Republican Party had approached me and, and said, hey, would you be interested in possibly replacing Robert Cornejo on the ballot for state representative? You've already got a campaign going, you know the drill, you know, you're very involved in these local issues, so you know the district, we think you'd be a good fit. Kind of thought it over, talked a bit with my employer and decided to go ahead and do it. And that was history. Let's kind of delve into issues because we have a lot to talk about. This has been a very busy state legislative session. Uh, before we delve into specific issues, what has been your general impression of session so far? Obviously, COVID-19 is still looming large. There's the usual interplay between the House, the Senate and the governor, some of which has like exploded in somewhat spectacular fashion with with letters of, of sorts between the governor and the mainly the governor to the speaker. But what's been your general impression so far? You, you know, this session is finally starting to feel like we're headed towards getting back to normal. Well, we're not quite there yet, but uh, we're, we're digging into things quite a bit more. Uh, you know, last year, of course, you know, between the, the extended spring break because of the COVID situation and, you know, some of the, the other things that were going on, we really didn't have a, a normal session really at all. We, we had just gotten started when, when all things hit. Uh, and so this year, I think we were more prepared. We had a lot more in mind of how things were going to run. Uh, and I think things are working smoothly. Uh, new leadership has definitely been an adjustment for, for us in the trenches. Uh, you know, I, I think we've, we're seeing fewer bills moving through the process, but we have more time to spend on each bill, which I think is a positive. We actually going to kind of have those discussions a little bit more in depth rather than kind of rushing through to the next one. So I've liked that. Uh, you know, personally, of course, I'd like to see more of my legislation move through the process, but uh, I feel like everyone would say that. So uh, overall, I think we're moving in the right direction. The House just passed a bill to forgive federal unemployment overpayments. Now, there was some talk about the Senate possibly adding some language to also forgive the state portion. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, this was discussed a little bit in committee. I think it was Peter Meredith, Representative Peter Meredith of St. Louis, had talked about possibly utilizing the CARES Act funding for that. And I think you had a little bit of an exchange with him saying that you might be in support of that idea. Uh, we heard uh, Representative Cups, who's also a major uh, sponsor in this legislation, saying if it if it, they could maintain the integrity of the unemployment program and use CARES Act funding, he'd be in support of this. Just could you talk to me a little bit about this bill, its evolution, where you'd like to see it go, um, and and how you'd like to see it pan out in the end, uh, possibly with the governor signing it? Sure. Uh, so the short version is, you know, for those listening, the the. Uh, unemployment uh, office, the, the Department of Labor specifically, had uh, unintentionally basically approved a good number of people for some extended unemployment benefits that, you know, according to the law, they apparently don't qualify for. There, there's a lot of nuances to how that happened and how that works. I won't get into all that, but uh, that overpayments basically that was sent out to people, they, they, they received these checks months ago in many cases, and in oftentimes for multiple weeks, they were receiving these, these checks. Um, that was made up of about 80% of that money came from the federal government uh, through uh, the extended unemployment benefits that the Congress passed early last year. Um, the remaining 20% was through the normal state unemployment trust fund that we have that pays out our normal uh, unemployment claims. And what was basically the discussion was about uh, this legislation would basically uh, waive the federal portion of those overpayments, meaning that people wouldn't be expected to pay that money back since, you know, we did mess up. There was no, you know, 
fraud or or ill intent involved in, you know, in those applications. People basically were just doing what you know they were asked to. They filled out the paperwork and we said, yeah, you're approved. We sent them some money. And then all of a sudden they were getting these letters saying, oh, well, we messed up. We actually need that money back. And of course, these folks had spent the money a long time ago. It wasn't reasonable to, to tell someone five months later that because of you know a bureaucratic mistake that they owe five grand back to the state. And so we worked together with, with uh, you know, folks on their side of the aisle, with the governor's office to some extent. Uh, he's got a little different opinion on how things should work. But you know, we felt in our committee that ultimately, at the very least, the federal portion of those monies should be you know, forgiven. Uh, and the federal government agreed. They issued guidance that basically said, you know, if there wasn't any fraud, the states can waive that, that aspect of the money and, and they won't be on the hook for paying the federal government back. The part that was a little sticky was that state portion of the money. Uh, because of the fact that that was paid from the normal unemployment trust fund that businesses pay into through their premiums, the concern was if we were to pass legislation to waive that aspect as well, well, ultimately that's going to hurt the solvency of that trust fund. Premiums are going to go up for businesses and they're going to end up being hurt even though they didn't cause this problem either. And so that was, that was the issue. Now, Representative Meredith, among others, had suggested, well, the money that the federal government has, has offered us in the CARES Act you know, we could use that to basically refill the trust fund after we've waived these payments, uh, and then, then we're good. Uh, the problem ultimately was no one in the committee had real good confidence that he was 100% right about that, and none of us wanted to hold up waiving the federal part of those overpayments while we investigated that particular aspect of the issue. And so the decision was kind of made, let's move forward with, with the federal side of things, and then we'll have this, the state portion discussion later. Now, subsequently, we, there was some floor debate. Uh, there was an amendment offered, I think, by uh, Representative Mackey uh, that would deal with the state portion now. Uh, I, I think that the caucus in general is split on that. I don't, I don't think that there was a consensus as to how we should, should handle that. Personally, I, I think we need to figure out a way to do it. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that the philosophical argument changes anymore because the money came from you know, this bucket of money versus this other bucket. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, the government did, did mess up and, and people are you know, being asked to pay back money that ha they have spent a long time ago. And I don't, I don't think that's reasonable, whether that came from the state or the feds. So I think we should fix it. For some of these people, it's not a small sum of money. I mean, it's thousands, tens of thousands sometimes for some of these people and coming up with it, you know, just off the drop of the hat is very difficult. I couldn't do that. Um, and uh, people are already suffering uh, due to the economic effects of COVID. So I do think that that's important to point out. Um, so now that you say that, I do remember kind of a discussion that you were having with Representative Ian Mackey, who basically sat down in committee and said, we can afford to pay it. These people can't. So we need to take care of it in our general revenue. We need to just figure out how to do it. Um, and I think he's, he's uh, stayed, even though he is, his name is on the bill now that forgives just the federal portion. I think he's, he's stayed pretty, um, uh, pretty strong in the fact that he'd like to see the, the state uh, take care of waiving the funds as well. There was an emergency clause that was on this uh, legislation and then it was taken off. There was some discussion about well, there, there, were, there has been assurances from the Department of Labor and Governor Mike Parson that they won't come after the people anymore, essentially call off the dogs from trying to get this money back, um, but don't pass an emergency clause because there's just not enough time to get infrastructure in place, training in place, paperwork done. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there was definitely some confusion and I was getting messages on Twitter from people saying, you know, doesn't this essentially make the bill useless if it doesn't have to go into effect until August. 
So, so you more or less summed it up. I, I think that the, the tough part there was the way the department handles these, they don't have a process in place to be able to just waive all of these uh, overpayments automatically across the board. They have to actually go through and individually waive each and every application. And in fact, the way this bill works, basically, if someone received a letter indicating that they had this overpayment, they would actually have to apply to the, to the department for this waiver. And then the department would say, yes, you, 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 know, you qualify for a waiver under the bill and, and therefore your, your debt, quote unquote, is forgiven. Um, and, and so that process will take a while. There's a lot of paperwork involved with that. So I, I understand why they might be concerned about an emergency clause you know, putting this into effect, you know, say end of April or, or May, if it gets to the governor's office that quickly, um, that that would be a, a very short amount of time for them to turn this around and figure out how to do it. The reasoning I, I was told and that was, was stated on the floor by, by multiple members um, was ultimately that if we remove the emergency clause now uh, from the bill, that in the event that the department doesn't cooperate, they don't play ball, they, they slow walk this, you know what, we've got another month and a half, we can always throw it back out in the Senate or in a conference committee before it goes to the governor's desk. Uh, and so it really didn't make a huge difference if it was on the House version or not. And I think that's a reasonable argument. I did actually vote in favor of the emergency clause. I'm not inclined to have a lot of pity for the Department of Labor. I, I think they kind of got us into this mess and they can fix it and they can figure it out. But uh, you know, at the same time, I also recognize that perhaps uh, you know, more temperate heads will, will ultimately prevail in this argument. And, and it's probably gonna be a little bit more complicated than I might like to think of it, so. As you were talking, I remembered in committee, you brought up the fact that if we waive these federal unemployments, oftentimes a forgiven debt from the federal government is taxable income. Do we know the answer to that yet? Would people be taxed on this? I don't know 100%. Uh, no one has given me an official answer. I still believe the answer is probably yes, um, or at the very least, uh, it probably still is at the state level as well. We may actually need to revisit this uh, before next year uh, to deal with that aspect. We, we are working on uh, provisions that would deal with uh, federal uh, uh, stimulus checks and whatnot, uh, you know, being tax-free in Missouri, um, but we may need to, to deal with these overpayments as well. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's an issue we have to keep working on. One thing that I think could become a bigger issue in the next few weeks and months is we're recording this on Friday, March 5th, at 2.11, uh, the U.S. Senate is debating uh, whether to set to pass a, a massive stimulus bill that will include billions of dollars coming to the state of Missouri, both to cities and counties, but also to the state. I, I covered the, actu the last time this happened in 2009, and when the state got a lot of money from uh, President Obama's stimulus bill— there was a group of Republicans that like wanted to use it toward tax cuts or there were even some people that were like, let's send the money back. The money did not get sent back, by the way. It got used. What do you think is going to happen when the state literally like a dump truck full of money gets dropped on the state from the stimulus bill? Well, I would probably say nothing, uh, nothing good. I mean, not nothing good, but uh, ultimately I, I kind of look at it a little bit uh, like uh, somebody winning the lottery. Uh, you know, some people can handle it very, very well, but uh, most people don't. And, and I, I think uh, we're probably going to be looking at a similar situation. Uh, you know, I, I think there is a, a lot of really good arguments that the states and not just Missouri, but across the board, you know, ought to have to request money from the feds, you know, through a resolution or something similar uh, in order to qualify. And that if a state turns it down, then, well, there's more money in the pot that can go to the other states that want it. You know, that, I think that that is probably something we should talk about uh, at the federal level. Uh, you know, I don't think that's going to happen here uh, in this particular case. 
but I do think that it's important that, you know, anytime the federal government gives the state a chunk of money, uh, that we as a legislature, you know, talk about that. You know, whether we have direct appropriation authority, you know, through the budgeting process or, or not, which of course, you know, in a lot of cases is kind of up to the feds. Uh, ultimately, I think the policies as to how that money should be spent and, you know, what the priorities are, I think that's something that we should all be on the record for and that it, it shouldn't necessarily be something that, you know, the governor just decides executively um, and that the legislator just kind of gets a report on. I, I think we should be involved in that. On, on the Medicaid issue, I, I, I have been following the issue of Medicaid expansion for 15 years. It is not a secret that a lot of Republicans do not like the concept of Medicaid expansion. And there's been a lot of talk. I've read some articles about there's talk about like trying to not actually implement it, even though there's been a constitutional amendment. But let's just say the federal government sends the state $1.1 billion and you can use that extra Medicaid money to pay for the state match for the next six, seven, eight years. Does that change the trajectory of this debate to where maybe Republicans who have misgivings about this back down because the whole question of the state match becomes moot for a while? You know, I think it definitely changes the discussion. I don't necessarily know that it, it changes the analysis in a lot of cases. Uh, I, you know, I'd have to look at the specifics, but one of the things that, that I know I have a lot of concerns on and, and a lot of my colleagues do as well is anytime you've got money for coming in from the feds, there's always strings attached. And sometimes, you know what, it's, it's still worth the gamble. It's, it's not, you know, the trade-off is there. And other times it's definitely not. And, you know, with the Medicaid thing, we've already kind of seen that, uh, that they're, they're perfectly willing to change the rules down the line, you know, when, when circumstances change and then the state has to be prepared to shift accordingly. And, you know, I, I certainly would think that a, you know, large sum of money from the federal government would make the, the process of implementing that uh, constitutional amendment, should that be the decision that's made, um, a lot easier. At the same time, I don't think we want to be in a situation where, yeah, we might be good for, for six or seven years, but, you know, 15 years from now we're bankrupt. So we've got to look at all those angles. Before we go to break, I, I have read some articles about how the Medicaid expansion uh, proposal has been put into a separate budget bill. And a lot of Democrats are concerned about that because they fear Republicans are going to vote that down and Missouri is going to be plunged into a court fight over whether Medicaid expansion can actually happen. Um, which, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I know that constitutional amendments usually trump anything. And it seems like that would be a lawsuit that Republicans that don't like Medicaid expansion have a great chance of losing. Um, what What's going on there? Are we about to see Medicaid expansion going into court? Or are Republicans just going to, you know do what the governor of Missouri said and implement it? Well, I don't have a prediction because I don't have enough information to, to make a, a accurate analysis there. But I can say this, the, the talk that I've heard that I think is very credible is that there are legitimate questions as to whether or not the constitutional provision that was passed will trump other areas of the Missouri Constitution that indicate that you can't compel the legislature to appropriate funds through an initiative process. And, and I think that's ultimately what the courts are going to look at. Uh, now that's going to be separate from what we do, you know, in the General Assembly. But I, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all that we would be planning our budget process, you know, assuming that at some point in time this is going to get litigated, you know, on one side or the other, and that we need to be prepared for either eventuality. We'll be right back after this short break with State Representative Tony Lavasco. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Tony Lavasco. He is a Republican from St. Charles County. 
Uh, recently, the Missouri House passed legislation that effectively re-implemented the requirement that you need a government issue photo ID uh, to vote in Missouri. There had been a statute that had been effective for, I guess, a year or two, but it got struck down in court. And as Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft told me, basically was rendered inoperable. Um, explain what this bill does and why you think it's necessary, because I, I think it goes without saying that um, this is not an issue that Republicans and Democrats agree with. But I think it's important for listeners to understand what where Republicans are coming from, because I think the chances of this bill passing are, are very high, basically. So what's going on with photo photo ID? Sure. So the, the controversy and the case that, that you referenced uh, dealt with the original measure that was passed by the voters a couple years back. And the Supreme Court effectively found that one of the provisions of that measure, which uh, basically uh, allowed for someone to vote provisionally if they didn't have an ID, uh, as long as they signed this affidavit indicating that they didn't have their identification, that that particular aspect was was unconstitutionally uh, vague and impossible to comply with. And you know, you, you read their their analysis, and, and to be honest, I, I think I probably agree. I think the the way it was worded, it fact effectively made you uh, sign a document that says that. You know, you don't have an ID, but it, it, it wasn't very clear. Well, does that mean on your person? Does that mean at all? You know, and, and people could be put in a, a position where they were uncomfortable signing that document because they didn't want to be, you know, signing something under, you know, threat of perjury uh, that wasn't actually accurate. And so and so that would have a, a chilling effect. And, and therefore, that was no good. So I agree with that. Uh, ultimately, the bill that we passed, uh, you know, it didn't really do all that much other than fix that provision and implement a few other minor things that the Supreme Court had indicated uh, basically we needed to have in order to have a constitutional voter ID measure. Uh, so I, I think that while it, it's fun to have the topic and the, the debates about the, the voter ID controversy, I, I think ultimately, you know, that debate more or less happened three years ago. And at this point, we're, we're, we're cleaning it up to make sure that we don't have anything on the books that's unconstitutional. Some representatives on the floor were making the argument that photo ID does hurt marginalized communities because they may not have access to photo ID. But I also want to point out that Missouri also has um, law that allows people to get some type of photo ID free, free of charge, right? That's that's uh, something that is still in Correct. place. Okay. Um, so I would like still to address that issue because I, I do think um, it was representative uh, Kevin Windham from Hillsdale. He said that it's not just photo ID matters like this that make it more difficult for people to vote is voter disenfranchisement. Why is it important? Why is it a priority to the Missouri legislature to get laws like having a photo ID require, requirement to vote um, passed? Well, sure. So I, I think the two-part answer, I think to, to your first point, I think uh, Missouri law is, is very clear that if you cannot afford an identification, if you don't have an identification, the Secretary of State's office has to be able to, to get that for you. They have to go, go, they go out of their way basically to acquire you know, copies of birth certificates, anything like that that you might need in order to get that valid uh, you know, non-driver photo ID uh, that you can use for voting. Uh, and the state absorbs the cost for that, right? So we don't want to create a poll tax where people are, you know, having to go, you know, spend all kinds of time requesting documents, maybe from out of state, things like that, uh, in order to comply with this, this requirement. So, so that was something that we had looked at, and, and it has been happening for the last several years. Um, you know, to the other point, as far as why this is a priority now, I mean, I, I think, honestly, we tried to, to, to fix this for the last couple of years. Other things, I think, you know, just took priority in the, in the scheduling. 
Um, I, I personally, I think anytime the court says that one of our laws is unconstitutional, we ought to be taking a hard look at it pretty much immediately because we can't be implementing things uh, that there's disagreements on the constitutionality of. Um, but specifically, as far as the timing, you know, I would say there, there's a lot of folks that had some concerns about the election last year. And, you know, while I think that a lot of the specific uh, allegations were perhaps a little overblown, I think one of the most important jobs that we have, you know, in the General Assembly is making sure that people have confidence in our system, in our elections. And I think voter ID, which is something that the voters did vote for overwhelmingly, is part of that process to make people feel like, hey, you know what, we can trust the system even if it's not necessarily stopping any huge amounts of fraud, because I, I don't know that it necessarily does that. But I do think it does actually give people more confidence that the elections are, in fact, fair. And I, I don't mean to be flippant about this point, but there's another larger issue where people are being dishonest about things that has been happening in Missouri for years, and that's Missouri's excuse-based absentee system, which last year was essentially turned into no excuse, although... I would say that even proponents of what was passed last year would say it was confusing and and not that intuitive. Uh, But, you know, those changes disappeared. And we just had an election in the city of St. Louis where I actually talked with a voter that said, I'm not voting in this election because I'm not eligible to vote absentee. And even though, like, he would suffer no consequences by saying he was out of town, he didn't want to lie because he didn't want to get in trouble lying. Uh, I've talked with one of your colleagues, State Representative Peggy McGaw, about maybe uh, carving out an in-person, no-excuse absentee system. But how realistic is it that, you know, Republicans are actually going to make something like that permanent? Because I think for a lot of voters, they liked having that no-excuse system. And the fact that it's gone has caused some consternation. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there's probably not a lot of appetite to make radical changes. Uh, that being said, I, you know, I, I think most of us would be perfectly willing to explore the the list of excuses as perhaps being a little lacking. I, I agree with you. I think, you know, that most folks recognize that, you know, the, the little checkboxes that they provide are, are not necessarily all of the legitimate reasons that you might not be able to, to come in in person and vote. And, and so making change to that system, yeah, I absolutely think that could happen. I wouldn't expect to see, you know, things like early voting or mail-in voting uh, expanded in any significant capacity. Uh, but but the, the excuses specifically for, for absentee voting, as long as people are coming in, they're showing their identification, you know, people can actually look them in the eye and say, hey, yeah, you, you, you are who you say you are. I think most people would recognize that that's still fairly secure. So that, that, that should be fine. I want to spend the last few minutes of the show talking about education policy. And we could probably spend the whole show talking about education policy. Uh, But unfortunately, we don't have unlimited amounts of time. There's been two major pushes by Republicans that I think have split both caucuses, if we want to be honest with ourselves. One is charter school expansion, and one is the establishment of what's known as education savings accounts. I want to talk about education savings accounts first. Uh, A couple years ago, we had uh, one of your St. Charles County colleagues, uh, Phil Cristofanelli, on the show, talked about education savings accounts for a big part of the show. Um, and his bit, I think he handled the bill that basically creates uh, a tax credit program that people can donate to. I think it's like a $50 million program. There have been similar iterations of this in the past that have actually failed outright. Former state representative Carl Bjorden, I think, handled something similar to this in 2007, and it only got 62 votes. And it's passed very narrowly. 
I think only 82 people voted for it on third read. Why is this an issue that is splitting your both caucuses? Because there were several Democrats that voted for it on perfection. And what do you think is the, the prognosis of this actually passing, given that it doesn't seem like Republicans and large are enamored with this idea? Well, I do think it'll get through the Senate. I don't think it will be by a huge margin, but I, I do think it will end up passing. Uh, you know, as far as why it's such a close vote, I, I think the education space is definitely an area in which there is just massive involvement outside of the building, whether that be through lobbyists, through you know superintendents, through advocacy groups. You know, there are so many voices in the education field in general on any topic that it's very difficult to have a conversation without you know, seven or eight different people shouting at you in the background that you're wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think it's very difficult for a lot of reps to, to really take a position that they can be consistent on on, on, one, on these education issues, just because it is so complicated and there's so many moving parts. You know, I, I think it's, it's interesting to listen to, you know, both uh, uh, opponents and proponents of these types of measures, and both sides are absolutely convinced that it's either going to destroy schools as we know it, or it's going to completely save them, and this is the panacea, and Honestly, I think they're both wrong. I think all of these measures are incremental fixes, you know, that, that, you know, have a chance of making it a little bit better. And, you know, if we don't get it right, it's going to maybe make it a little bit worse. But, you know, we're not talking sweeping changes on really any of these issues. And yet it really feels like it sometimes when you have these discussions, just because there's so many emotions and so many people want to weigh in. Why do you think it was restricted just to urban and suburban areas? I mean, I have a theory. I think it was because it could pass if you expanded it to the rural areas. But I want to hear, I, I don't want to, speak for you like what why was it restricted that way when it ended up passing i wasn't involved in those conversations directly and it does cover my area but I, you know i would probably presume the same thing that there were probably some representatives that you know were inclined to want to move towards some reforms but were concerned that their area and their, their superintendents were against this bill and that you know perhaps it would be an easier vote you know with them carved out i I really don't like when we do that. We do that in a lot of different areas. This is certainly not specific to education, uh, but it's part of the process. And sometimes you got to got to take a small bite before I can take a big one. Well, another issue where it is kind of narrowly tailored is charter school expansion, because my understanding from reading the bill in the Senate that is sponsored by Cindy O'Loughlin, a senator from Northeast Missouri, is it would basically allow charter schools to be set up in charter counties are, I guess, municipalities over a certain population. St. Charles County is a charter county, as is Jeffco, St. Louis County. Uh, City of St. Louis already has charter schools in Jackson County. Uh, the, the question I've been trying to figure out, and I asked this to State Representative Joe Dahl last week, if this bill passed, where would the charter schools go? Because I don't sense that there's like a huge appetite for charter schools in St. Charles County or parts of St. St. Louis County, because People move to these places for the public school system. So what what is the objective here? Like, what is going to happen if this passes? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I haven't read the, the Senate bill, but but yeah, I, I have that concern with a lot of these uh, uh, charter expansion measures that we've seen in the last few years that, uh, you know, we want to be careful anytime we are looking to reform any of our, our government uh, departments that we're not just passing feel-good legislation. And, and sometimes I think we do kind of walk towards that line. I, I'm inclined to agree. And, I, and I've told uh, people uh, in my district as, exactly as much. Uh, no charter school is going to open in my district because it's not going to get any business. Like it, it would be completely contrary to, to, to logic. And so, well, yeah, it's an easy vote for me, of course. To, you know, Of course, I'll support that. It's not going to come here anyway. So what's the matter? I, I would like to see us move towards kind of a larger discussion on what's good for policy across the state. 
I, you know, I recognize that that probably is going to mean that we're kicking the can. We're probably not getting something passed for a longer period of time. But I think ultimately, if we can come to a consensus, I'd rather see a smaller reform that we can do in a larger measure than a big reform that only applies in a handful of areas. Well, well, when I did have Representative Dahl on last week, she talked about how she doesn't like charter schools. She is a school board member in Webster Groves. She says that they are corrosive to the public school system and unaccountable. I imagine you have a different perspective. And one of the things I like to do on this show is provide the opposite of perspective on things. So why is she wrong? Like, why are charter schools actually not as bad as maybe some of the opponents say? Well, I think I'd probably argue that the existing system can be corrosive and unaccountable. So, meh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think ultimately we're going to have a lot of the same problems with charter schools as we do with the existing system, because ultimately they, they are public schools. They're just run in a different way. And, and so they're subject to a lot of the same limitations and a lot of the same kind of inherent problems that we have with the current system. They're designed simply to provide another avenue and at least a little bit more competition to theoretically make everyone kind of on their A game. And I think, yeah, in, in that measure, I think that it's, it's worth giving them a shot. I, I don't have a problem with exploring that. Uh, but do I think it's going to magically fix the, the concept of public education? No. Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining us on this show. We'll, we'll be glad to have you back in subsequent years because this was a fascinating and fast-paced conversation. I think we got through like six topics in 35 minutes, which is great. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people follow you on Twitter, Jacqueline? At Driscoll NPR. And how could people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? I'm at Tony Lavasco. You can also visit my website at TonyLavasco.com. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long.